We'll read from verse 44 all the way to the end of the chapter. John 11, beginning at verse 44. This is God's word. The man who had died, that is Lazarus, came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will come believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Amen. We thank God for this, his word to us this morning and trust that by his spirit he will both encourage and challenge his people. As you can see there from our title, today we're thinking about one life for all God's people. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in these moments together that you will speak into our hearts and minds whatever Our position is before you, we pray for help that we might hear and understand and respond. Come and visit us, we pray. Fill this place with your presence. Fill our hearts and minds with your love and with your truth. We desperately, desperately need you. Come and have your way among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have noted a number of times that uh, John is very selective in his reporting of the ministry of Jesus. Now, how could you report everything that he did for those uh, three and a half years? For example, we only have seven miracles reported uh, in John's gospel, or seven signs as they're called. But as we come to the end of chapter 11, and as we, next week, we'll begin chapter 12, John is beginning his countdown to the crisis of the cross. As 
was explained by uh, Caleb there in his uh, prayer. The, the Passover is at hand. The excitement is rising. The opposition is growing. And the shadows of the cross are length- lengthening for Jesus. He's being prepared for the slaughter he would face on the cross. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at three incidents. The supper uh, in Bethany and the anointing of Jesus. The triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And then that unique little story to John's gospel, the visit of a group of Greeks to see Jesus and to speak to him. And each of those incidents will again point to aspects of the cross. And we're going to look at that together. You see, it's all about looking to and understanding the cross of of Jesus. And yet while some, we're increasingly going to see, some will believe, there's also much unbelief. Now, much of John's gospel is on the subject of belief. You know, believe and receive. It's right there at the beginning of the the, the, the prologue of John's gospel. The call to belief is constantly there uh, in John's gospel. The evidence for belief is there. But throughout the gospel, over and over again, we see people divided by Jesus, seemingly unable or unwilling to believe. Now, before we get to the first of our two points this morning, I think it's obvious that we need to ask this question, or maybe make the statement. Don't end up on the wrong side of the divide. I mean, if there's a divide between belief on one hand and unbelief on the other, don't end up on the wrong side. Please don't. That's the plea of the gospel, and it's the plea of this preacher to you today. So let's think first of all about this division created by Jesus in those uh, first few verses that we read together. Verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. So in verses 45 and 46, we have the friends of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And actually, therefore, we have, we have the, um, the friends who saw, witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. And many of them, we told in verse 45, believed. They saw that Lazarus was dead. They saw that Lazarus was dead for four days. They saw Lazarus raised to life. And what did they do? Well, what would you do? They put their faith in the Savior who raised them to life. They saw the power of God. They saw the actions of the Messiah, and they responded rightly with saving faith. Therefore, many, verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. They entered into salvation, the kingdom of God. It's absolutely glorious, isn't it? It's absolutely awesome. And so that's what we see in verse 45. But sadly, in verse 46, we see the polar opposite. Again, friends of Mary and Martha and Lazarus saw the same miracle and somehow came to a different conclusion. 
a very different response. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There's no question about what happened. There's no question about Lazarus being raised, but they just didn't believe that the one who raised him was God. See, birds of a feather flock together, and unbelieving hearts are bound together. They saw the same miracle, and instead of their hearts being softened, and they believed, their hearts were hardened. Now, I think we can understand that, can't we? Maybe you can think of your home and your family. This is painful, isn't it? The same upbringing, the same gospel presentation, the same church involvement, and some believe, and some do not. It's very painful. It's heartbreaking. The Puritans put it like this. They said that the same sun melts the snow and hardens the clay. So many believe, verse 45, and some do not believe, verse 46. It happened back then, and it still happens today in our families and in our church family. The same is happening today. So I ask you the question, do you believe? I mean, do you believe? Maybe, just um, maybe, some of you are here today, and by the way, so glad you're here, but some of you are here today, and you're simply going through the motions of evangelical and reformed religion. That's what we stand for. But if truth be told, you could say, this, this faith It's not mine. I would like it to be mine. In many ways, I want it to be mine, but it's not mine. Actually, really, truly, I'm not sure about the stuff that we keep hearing about Sunday after Sunday. I don't think I believe in this gospel. Once upon a time, maybe I thought I believed, and I acted as if I believed. But I'm not sure I do believe. Now, you might say, ah, there you go again, negative and harsh and judgmental. No, no, I don't think I am being. I don't think I am being. Because over the years, I have watched people come and go in this congregation. People who attended church stopped, people involved, no longer involved, people seemingly believed, now seemingly don't believe. What went on? What went on back then? And what goes on now? Maybe you're here today and you're struggling to believe. You hear the same things and you see the same things. 
but you're struggling to believe. And maybe you're here because you're expected to be here. Maybe you're here because it's what you do on a Sunday. Maybe you're here because our culture and tradition says this is what is the right and good and proper thing. Maybe you're here because your spouse kind of forces you to be here. Or maybe your parents force you to be here. Or your position, maybe even the church, demands that you be here. But you struggle to believe. You see and you hear and you understand, but there's something missing. And I know there's a, in a church like this, there's a, a pressure to look the part, to play the role, to conform. But maybe you don't believe. If that's you, then can I tell you, my heart bleeds for you. But more importantly, the Savior's body bleeds for you. There are only two categories, belief and unbelief. And Jesus always brings division. He always has. And he continues to this day. There's no third category. Oh, oh we wish there was, you know, on the fence, you know, in the middle. And you can step one way or the other very, very easily. No, you believe or you don't believe. That's what the Bible keeps saying. They saw the same thing these friends of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They saw Lazarus sick. They saw Lazarus dead. They saw Lazarus was dead for four days. They saw Lazarus raised. And many said, you know what? That's enough. I believe. Nobody else could do this. There's no other explanation other than this is God. And yet some said, no matter what I witness, no matter what I see, it will never be enough. Never be enough. And probably, I'm not told this, but probably the some who didn't believe had actually made their minds up a long time before. And nothing, I say nothing, would change that view. They don't want Jesus. They don't want truth. They don't want to change and again, I've seen it in ministry, people who seem to have made up their minds at a very young age, and it doesn't matter what's explained to them. It doesn't matter what they see. It doesn't matter what they hear. They will not believe. Even if a miracle was performed in their sight, they will not believe. Oh, and some have said to me, and maybe they've said to you, maybe you've said yourself, you want, if I ever saw a miracle, then I would believe. Or if God just give me a miracle, I would trust. But just look at verse 48. Here's a man performing many miraculous signs. They saw it all. Those who didn't believe, they saw it all. They witnessed it. They acknowledged it. This Man, here's this man performing many miraculous signs. They acknowledged that he did it, and yet they would not believe. Because the decision had already been made. So here we get to the nitty-gritty. Have you already made that kind of decision? A 
about Jesus. You've closed your mind to the grace of God. You've closed your heart to the love of Jesus. You've closed your soul to the work of the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't matter what people will say to you. It doesn't matter what evidence God places in in your life. It doesn't matter a thing. You have made up your mind. I cannot believe. I will not believe. Jesus brings division. And here we see it again in John 11. Many believe, and some do not believe. On which side of the divide are you? On which side of the divide are you? That's the division created by Jesus. I've spent a long time on that because I feel, I felt today was the day to make that case. On which side of the divide are you? But what about the plan undertaken by Jesus, which is the bulk of the next section, 48 to 52? The Sanhedrin was basically the Jewish, religious, political, cultural group. It goes into emergency session on this seventh sign or miracle, the, the, as we said last week, the Everest of the miracles. And if you want to know what the Sanhedrin is, it's probably the, um, like the Cobra group, cabinet and the Supreme Court all wrapped into one. Uh, they're the power brokers in Israel at the time. Do you know what, see, the Romans sometimes get a bad press, but if you behaved yourself and if you paid your taxes, the Romans basically let you get on with things. They were just interested in the money and they were interested in peace. If you did that, you can do your own thing. The problem with the Sanhedrin was that every so often, these uh, leaders would rise up and cause a bit of dissension among the people, and they would encourage the people to stop paying taxes. So what would the Romans do? Ah, They would roll into town with their legions and cause a great deal of grief. So the Sanhedrin were concerned that Jesus would cause trouble by whipping up the crowd, getting them all excited, causing trouble, not paying their taxes, and therefore cause the Romans to come in with a a heavy hand. Verse uh, 48, what are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There's a real fear. Our place was the temple where they were standing and meeting in. Our nation, of course, is Israel. So so Jesus was a major threat to their power, their position, and their privilege as the ruling elite in the nation of Israel. And and so they asked this beginning of verse 48, what are we accomplishing? I mean, they had opposed him now for so long, almost three years, they were getting absolutely nowhere. In fact, the more they opposed him, the more popular he seemed to be becoming. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. So they kind of acknowledged that Jesus wasn't doing bad things, but many miraculous things. But if he wasn't stopped, if he wasn't stopped, everyone would believe in him. And they had this dilemma. Their concern, of course, 
was not religious or, or theological, but political. And Caiaphas, the high priest, takes over. He's a slick politician. And look what he says in verse 49. You know nothing at all. Basically saying, you're all stupid. That's how to win friends and influence people, isn't it? Just insult them. That's what he says in verse 49. But then he comes up with a plan in verse 50. Do you not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish? That's not hard to understand that, is it? I mean, it's, it's logical. Better, basically, that Jesus die than the whole nation be destroyed. There's a logic to that argument, isn't there? The interesting thing is he didn't know how right he almost was. He had no idea what he was saying. So John makes commentary on that in verse 51 and 52. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So Caiaphas had one plan, get rid of Jesus so that politically they would be safe. God had another plan that Jesus would save his people from their sins, and they all would come from the same event. See, it's interesting how you can look at things from a different angle and see something completely different. Caiaphas was thinking political stability, military security. God was thinking eternal salvation for all his people. And so Jesus, yes, would die, and he would save the elect Jews who believed in him and the scattered children of God, the Gentiles like us. That's all explained in verse 52. Let me read it again. And not only for that nation, the Jewish nation, but also for the scattered children of God, that's us, to bring them together and make them one. Same event, two different views. God's plan, of course, was to save his people from their sins, not to buy two or three decades of political freedom. Because if you know history, you know that in AD 70, what did the Romans eventually do? They destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, basically destroyed the nation. So Caiaphas was trying to buy some time, but even his thinking was flawed. Caiaphas was proud and arrogant and manipulative. He was so close to being right, but he was so far from being right. Yes, Jesus would die for Israel and all God's people. Yes, Jesus would die for the sins of God's elect, God's chosen people right across the world. Jesus would die not for political stability. He was right in that Jesus would die, but wrong in the reason. This text, of course, introduces us to a very extremely, extremely important doctrine uh, that most of the commentators point to. You can imagine that they would. And it's very wordy, but we're going to break it down. Don't worry. Penal substitutionary atonement. You say, what? This is very important. And as you think about it, I'm going to take a little drink of water. See, the intent of the cross was to gather forgiven sinners from all over the world into one body, the church of Jesus Christ. So what does penal mean? Penal means punishment. If you know anything about history, you'll know about the, the penal laws, the punishment laws. 
penal speaks about punishment. We're all sinners. I hope we recognize that. We're made in the image of God to reflect His glory back to Him. We're supposed to be like mirrors, using our wisdom and our creativity and all that we are to glorify God, to give Him glory. But Adam and Eve said, no, we're not going to live for God and give Him glory. We're going to live for ourselves and give us glory. We're going to live for our pleasure. We're going to live according to our way. That is called sin. Rebellion against the will and way of God. The portrayal of our purpose as human beings made in the image of God. As Paul Tripp says, we are glory thieves. We are glory stealers. We steal glory that should go to God. We keep it for ourselves. It's a crime against God. It's sin against God. And of course, all sin must be punished. And the wages of sin is death. So punishment is required. Someone must pay the price of our sin. So it's either Jesus pays the price, Jesus takes the punishment, or I take the punishment. Jesus takes your punishment, or you take his punishment, but somebody has to be punished. Penal means punishment. That's key to the plan of God. But substitutionary, and we've already thought about that with the kids' talk, means that Jesus dies in our place. Caiaphas said Jesus would be a sacrifice to, to protect our political future, and God says, no, no, Jesus would die as a spiritual substitute for our benefit and in our place. I mean, tonight, for instance, we're, we're going to be coming to the Lord's table. I hope you'll join us for that as we, at the end of the service, we'll, we'll have communion together, and we will say these words, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I mean, this is the plan. This is the plan. And then the word atonement means to forgive or to make right, to fix the sin problem, to make us right with God, to pardon us from our sin and our sins. Can you see that? So Jesus would take our punishment in our place to forgive us and make us right. That's the plan. Caiaphas says, Oh, he's going to die for the nation and um, to give us political stability. And God says, no, he's going to die. My son's going to die for the spiritual salvation of my people. He was um, so near and yet so far. And you know, we can be so near this truth, can't we? So near. We can touch it. We can feel it. We can understand it. But we don't believe it. See the plan. Jesus takes our punishment in our place so that we might be forgiven and made right with God. That's all of the Bible, this plan, by the way, just in case you're wondering. Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Listen, I can give you hundreds of these. Um, 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, and by his wounds you have been healed. This is the gospel. So if you're saved here today, what's going on in your heads and hearts? 
I'll tell you what's going on in my head and my heart as I was preparing this. And I've had, obviously, loads more time to think about it than you have this morning. But I just thought to myself, but I'm so weak. I still sin. My faith is so poor. My commitment is so up and down. And yet, I almost felt as if the text was saying to me, yes, that's who you are. But don't you realize who has done what for you? Jesus has died for you. And that's what I rejoice in today. Despite my weakness and my sin and my poor commitment. But if you're unsaved here today, and by the way, I'm so glad you're here. So glad. But I have to tell you, you're outside of this plan. You're outside. This plan... It's not for you yet. You have no punishment taker. You have no substitute. You have no forgiveness. And I say to you, believe. Believe. Stop stealing his glory. And stop being so selfish. Stop being so rebellious. Stop ignoring Jesus in the gospel. And trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the call of the gospel. So the division created by Jesus and the plan undertaken by Jesus. That's our two main points. But let's briefly deal with the rest of the verses. Because we want to do justice to them. So, verse 53. So, from that day on, they plotted to take his life. The decision was made here in the, at this Sanhedrin meeting. And the deal is cut. This is the hinge, in a sense. There's no going back. The trials of, when we get to them in chapter 18 and 19, are simply a mockery. They're just carrying out the decision that was made here in chapter 11. But remember, who's in control? Caiaphas thought he was in control, but actually, he wasn't. The sovereign plan was the predetermined before the creation of time and space. The sovereign plan was prophesied and promised and revealed in the Old Testament. The sovereign plan is now being worked out. And Jesus was not going to be a puppet in Caiaphas's story. A puppet on a string. Jesus was working to God's timetable, not the Jewish timetable. And so, look what he does there in verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert to a village named Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. A quiet place. Um, the clock is ticking, yes, but his time had not yet come. It's getting very, very close. What we call Holy Week or what we call Passion Week was coming up soon, but it's not yet. Not yet. And notice he stayed with his disciples in verse 54, no doubt preparing them for what was to come. And in verses 55 to 57, describes the drama around trying to find Jesus. The orders were given, get him, kill him. It's rather pathetic, isn't it? And it's very evil. They thought they were in control. And, and here's the big lesson that we, I think we need to learn God will use even evil people to bring about his plans. We're going to see that again and again. 
There's almost a frantic bloodlust in verse 57. But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. And what we're going to see in the rest of the gospel Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and ultimately Judas Iscariot were all motivated by power and greed and politics and position. But God is in control, and he's working towards his plan. So even in this mad world with mad and bad leaders and people and sad situations all around us, do you know what? God is still in control. God has still got his plan. And Jesus would die for his people. And Jesus did die for his people. So in many ways, that takes us back to verses 45 and 46. Many believed, and some did not. So I ask again, where are you in that division? Do you believe, or do you not? Is it glory to him, or is it glory basically to yourself? Me, myself, I, and my plans, and my thinking, and my wisdom, or is it trusting in him, or trusting in self? I think I can get on in my life by myself. Thank you very much, Jesus. Is it living for him? Or living according to your agenda. Do you know what? I'm simply too busy to allow him to tell me what to do with my life. Do you believe? Or do you not believe? So two options. If you believe, live like it. Yeah, live like it. And if you don't believe... Repent. Now, here. As ever, if you want to talk about these things, I'd love to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, you're sweet and beautiful beyond description. And yet, you bring division in our arrogance and pride. Mankind very often says we will not believe. We will never believe. And yet your people, drawn irresistibly by your grace, believe. So draw us to the right side of the vision, we pray, by your Spirit. And help us to grasp the wonder of the plan so that we will be a people lost in wonder, love, and praise. Yeah, Jesus paid it all, every last bit. Thank you, Jesus. Lead us, we pray, into fruitful living and obedient living. In Jesus' name, amen.